Tonight I'd like to speak briefly just about some terms that we commonly use and that can often get confused with one another. I think having clarity about how we're defining terms can really help to clarify our own meditation practice. So I'll spend a little time doing that and then just share an anecdote or two from my last retreat. And then I'd like to open it for discussion if I haven't gone on too long. Uh, And just whatever questions uh, you'd like to ask about. So the first word that we really need to understand clearly is the word mind. Now this, this word has tremendous significance in the Buddhist teachings, and what we're doing is investigating our mind. Well, what do we mean by that? Within the Buddhist context, mind means consciousness and all the different mental factors or mental qualities that arise together in different combinations in every moment of consciousness. So this is mind. It's consciousness and all the various mental factors. So then, what is consciousness? Consciousness is defined as the knowing faculty. It's the faculty which knows the cognizing power of mind. But right here, we can get into some confusion because in English the word to know can mean various things. And so we can confuse the meaning of knowing, of consciousness. We use the word to know meaning to understand something. You know, I know, I don't know the laws of physics. (laughs) Or I know, you know, it's a body of knowledge. So we use, we use the word know to understand something. But here consciousness does not mean that. When we say consciousness means to know, it's not know in terms of understanding. It's simply the bare cognizance of the six sense objects. Knowing a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation, a mind object. And so you could think of consciousness as a mirror which simply is reflecting back what comes in front of it. Consciousness has this space-like quality, and sometimes that's the image used to describe it. It's not space, because space doesn't know anything, but it's space-like, that is, it's immaterial. And its only function is to know the object that is arising. And so in the Buddhist jargon, there's seeing consciousness, hearing consciousness, smelling consciousness, tasting consciousness. There's a consciousness that arises at each of the sense doors, mind included. Mind is the sixth sense object. Now what's important here is to realize that we can know without being mindful. In fact, that's most of our lives. Consciousness is there. Mindfulness is sometimes there. So the example I like to use for consciousness without mindfulness, are you familiar with black labs? Have you ever seen the black lab? And One could take any any animal, but black labs have a particular excitable, frenetic, enthusiastic way of being. So they're conscious. They're knowing mostly smells and sights and sounds. They're knowing in the same way we are. I don't think they're being mindful. You know, when I watch these black lads kind of going around, uh, mindfulness isn't there. But they're knowing. There's consciousness there. 
So an example, perhaps more immediate to ourselves, of the difference between the knowing of consciousness and mindfulness is just the experience we all have, especially in meditation, of when we've been lost in a thought and in the moment of awakening from being lost. When we're lost in the thought, we're not unconscious. We're knowing the thought, because if somebody asked us, what were you thinking, we could tell them what the thought was. But we're not, we haven't been mindful of the thought as a thought as it was happening. So we're conscious, we're knowing, but we're not mindful. Does this seem clear so far? Consciousness is the knowing faculty. It simply knows. Sometimes it's mindful. Very often it's not. Now, consciousness never arises alone. It always arises with an assortment of different, what are called in Buddhism, mental factors or mental qualities. And they arise in different combinations and they color the consciousness according to their particular qualities. So as some examples of mental factors. Ones we've been talking about a lot, you know, are the factors of greed and hatred and delusion and non-greed, generosity, love, wisdom, concentration, mindfulness, compassion, Now, there's a a long list, and in in the Buddhist psychology, there are 52 of these mental factors. Some of these factors are wholesome, some of them are unwholesome, and some are neutral. Who decided? (laughs) Well, as with all the rest of the Buddhist teachings, it's very pragmatic. The unwholesome factors of mind are those that lead to suffering. The wholesome factors of mind are those that lead to peace and happiness. And we don't have to believe it. We can really check it out for ourselves. One of these factors, one of these mental factors plays a very critical role in our experience and is often confused with mindfulness. So it's important to understand the distinction. And that is the mental factor of perception. Now perception is a neutral factor. It's neither wholesome nor unwholesome. It's arising in every moment. So it's called a common factor. And its function is to recognize the particular object. It interprets what consciousness knows. It discerns the distinguishing qualities of one thing from another. And so we see someone, man, woman. That distinction is the function of perception. Red, blue, white, the function of perception. It's picking out the distinguishing marks of something, recognizing it, creating a concept. So all the concepts we use come from perception. And we store those concepts in memory. So perception has to do with the the function of memory in our minds. Now what gets a little tricky and an important distinction for our meditation practice is that we can recognize what's arising and still not be mindful. Because mindfulness has a very particular quality over and above recognition. I'll give you an example. Years ago in my practice, And for a long time, the most predominant defilement in my mind was fear. I was working with fear as an emotion 
over the course of many years. And at times, it was incredibly intense and primal. It got so intense, and this was during times of intensive practice, there was fear to go from sitting position to standing. So this is not rational. It was just some primal experience of this energy of fear. I was working with it a lot. Fear, 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 for months. Fear, fear. But it was really locked in. After many months of working with this and going through all kinds of attitudes about it and feelings about myself, I'm such a fearful person and this is so deeply rooted and it's going to take me 30 years of therapy to unwind this and just on and on. I created a whole big self-story around this fear. But at one point on one retreat, and I remember the moment so clearly, it was at IMS, I was doing walking meditation outside. And as I was noticing the fear, something shifted in my mind. And it dropped to a level of acceptance where I said to myself, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And that was the first moment in all of these months, many months, of recognizing the fear that I had accepted it. In all that previous time, I knew it was there. I recognized the emotion for what it was, but it was always with an attitude, noting it in order that it would go away. There was no acceptance of it, and in fact, that's what locked it in. So this is just an example of how we can be recognizing both wholesome and unwholesome states and still not be mindful of them. So what is mindfulness? It's not consciousness, which is simply knowing. It's not perception, which is simply recognition. Mindfulness is an enhanced awareness, an enhanced presence of mind with certain very particular qualities. First, it's always wholesome. If mindfulness is in the mind, everything else in the mind is wholesome. So that's kind of good news. You know, given that we're practicing mindfulness, if we're really being mindful rather than simply recognizing or black lab consciousness, if we're really being mindful, the mind is wholesome. Some of its qualities, which distinguish it from the others and and give it its special, special quality, one is, Steve mentioned last night, with mindfulness we come face to face with the object. It's like we're right there in front of it. Mindfulness doesn't wobble. That's another of its qualities. The example in the text uh, makes, uh, uses the example, ordinary attention is like a cork, you know, bobbing on a stream, and mindfulness is like a stone which sinks into the water. So mindfulness has that non-wobbling aspect. Not forgetting, it's not forgetting what's in front of it. And perhaps most important, and the piece that has tremendous significance for our whole path of freedom and liberation, when we're being mindful, we're not identifying with the object or with the mindfulness itself. We're not identifying with the thought or the sensation or the emotion as being self or I. So now, where does awareness come in? How do we use that term? That's actually not 
the translation of any word in Pali. So this is just an English word, which in English has a wide range of meanings. And we've kind of incorporated it into our lexicon. We need to be very careful how we're using that term if we want to understand what our minds are actually doing. Very often awareness is synonymous. We use it synonymously with mindfulness. You know, are you aware of the thought? Are you mindful of the thought? But sometimes we use the word awareness and it may not be mindfulness at all. It would be more like recognition. You know, I'm aware of a sound. So we may be aware that a sound is present and be completely identified with hearing. Or we we may be aware of a sound with attachment, with aversion. So we're aware, but that's not being mindful. Mindfulness means awareness without attachment, without aversion, without being identified with the object. So we're together so far? Consciousness, mental factors, perception is the factor of recognition, not necessarily mindful. Mindfulness is this special quality of knowing what's there without identifying with it, without attachment, without resistance. Mindfulness, as wholesome as it is, is not enough. Because mindfulness is not wisdom. We need mindfulness to develop wisdom. It's the root to wisdom. We could even say it's the condition for wisdom to arise. But it's not wisdom in and of itself. Wisdom is what we see and understand when we have been continuously mindful for some time. So mindfulness is being present, not identifying with what's going on, it's wholesome. And so mindful, 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 mindful. Oh, that's how things are. We begin to understand. It's called knowledge and vision. Knowledge and vision in accordance with reality. Knowing and seeing things as they really are. So what are some of the things we see? You know, when mindfulness is continuous, when we practice it, and there's some flow, there's some momentum of mindfulness in our mind, we begin to see with clarity, with vision, the three characteristics. We see that things are changing. That's wisdom. We see the unreliability of phenomena because they're changing. That's wisdom. Even though mindfulness, in a moment of mindfulness, we haven't been identified with the object, it's wisdom which really understands the selfless nature of everything. So wisdom is the factor of non-delusion. It's like waking up from delusion. And of all the many kinds of delusion which we can experience, there's one form, there's one aspect that is the most harmful, the most dangerous, and causes tremendous disquiet and suffering in our lives. And that is precisely the mistaken view of self, of I, the perception and view of self. We have been deceived into believing that there is a reference point behind thoughts and sensations and sounds and smells, behind all experience, to whom everything is happening. We've created the notion of some little 
being in here that somehow is receiving all of these experiences. And we've created a concept about that, namely self. There was a, there was a T-shirt advertised in the New York Times and the, the message on the T-shirt said, me, me, me. Well, I think we should have a Buddhist t-shirt. Not me, not me, not me. (laughs) This view of self is very deeply habituated. So when we talk of not-self, it's very counterintuitive. You know, of course there's a self. You know, who is it that came to the retreat? You may be wondering. (laughs) (laughs) But when we look carefully through mindfulness and through the development of wisdom, we begin to see that what we're calling self is really the dance, the play, the interplay of what the Buddha called the five aggregates the five constituent elements of experience. You know, and as most of you probably know, it's the material elements, everything in the physical world. There's feelings, which is the quality of things being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. There's perception. There's mental formations as an aggregate, which are all the other mental factors. And there's consciousness. So these are the five aggregates, and in the Buddhist teachings, they are on almost every page of the discourses. The Buddha referred to these five aggregates over and over and over again. And as I mentioned in talking to the staff yesterday, I had been reading about these five aggregates for years and years and years, and I found it incredibly boring. It just seemed like some abstract philosophical framework. So I would just kind of skip those passages, even though (laughs) there were a lot to skip. (laughs) And it's really only recently, in the last few years, that I've gone, well, the Buddha talked about this a lot. (laughs) Maybe I should start exploring it a little bit within that framework. Of course, one was exploring it all along because that's the nature of our experience, but to actually use that particular framework to understand the moment-to-moment experience. And what struck me very uh, forcibly was how amazing it is that every single aspect of our experience fits into one of the five aggregates. So as a way of simplifying our understanding of the world and of ourselves, it's an amazing structure of understanding. Everything we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, feel in the mind, everything is expressed through these five aggregates. But of course, as we practice, even though the Buddha said very often, you know, these aggregates, both collectively and individually, are just arising and passing in each moment and not self, we see how often we are identified with different aspects of our experience. We have a thought, I'm thinking. We feel a sensation, my pain. I'm angry, I'm afraid, I'm hearing. It's like our ordinary way of understanding ourselves and the language we use to describe our experience keeps reinforcing this notion of self, this concept of self. And that's the basic delusion, that's the basic ignorance that we need to cut through. And on the most subtle level, even as we begin to see the sensations and the thoughts and emotions as arising and passing and maybe get glimpses of them not being self, 
because they're so impermanent, still we identify with consciousness, with the knowing faculty. And so in that identification, we create the sense of an observer, a witness. That's who I am. I'm the one who's knowing it all. So it takes a lot of mindfulness paying attention to how the aggregates are at play, how consciousness itself is arising and passing, to cut through this identification with knowing. So the Buddha was very clear about what constitutes bondage and where freedom lies. He said, suppose bhikkhus, and when he uses the term bhikkhu, that usually refers to monks, but it actually, in Pali, has a, has a more expanded meaning. It means anyone on the path. So when we read in the texts, you know, when the Buddha is addressing bhikkhus, he's really addressing us. He says, suppose bhikkhus, a dog tied up on a leash, was bound to a strong post or pillar. It would just keep on running and revolving around that same post or pillar. So just imagine, you know, a dog's tied up to a post and it just keeps running around and around. So too, uninstructed worldlings. (laughs) That's not us. But those who are uninstructed worldlings regard form, material elements as self, feeling as self, perception as self, volitional formations as self, consciousness as self. They just keep running and revolving around these five aggregates. As they keep on running and revolving around them, they are not freed from them. They are not freed from birth, aging, and death. Not freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair not freed from suffering. So this is the key issue. It's like we're tied to this notion of self and we keep running around these five aggregates and we're not freed from the condition of these five aggregates, which is birth, old age, disease, death, suffering of all kinds. We're tied to that post But what's so interesting is that that post is a concept. It's not that the self is there that we have to get rid of. It's not there in the first place. But we're misperceiving. We're not seeing accurately. Our whole path of mindfulness, continuous mindfulness, leading to wisdom allows us to see for ourselves, this is not a question of belief, and it's not Buddhist dogma, we see for ourselves what is the nature of this mind and body, and we begin to understand these five aggregates and their impermanent selfless nature. The Buddha went on, but the instructed noble disciple does not regard material elements of self, feeling of self, perception of self, formations of self, consciousness of self. They no longer keep running and revolving around them. As they no longer keep running around them, they are freed from them, freed from birth, aging, and death, freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, despair, freed from suffering. So this is what we're doing in the cultivation of mindfulness. We're seeing clearly, we're seeing with knowledge and vision. So it's helpful here, I think, to understand three levels of delusion. Three levels of what Steve called last night, the hallucinations, the distortions of reality. One we mentioned earlier, it's called distortion of perception, where we mistake one thing for another. We mistake the rope on the ground for a snake. 
One time I was sitting with Sada Upandita, the first retreat, and as most of you know or have heard from the story, he was a very strict, demanding teacher. And so it was quite a rigorous undertaking. So I was doing walking meditation outside, and I glanced up at the room where, the window at the room where he was staying, and I saw him watching me. And I walked back and forth. So, <laughs> you know, so I started walking slower, pretending to be mindful. <laughs> of course, that really was not being mindful. So I'm walking back and forth, and I look at And this went on like for five minutes, ten minutes. I couldn't imagine, why is he watching me for so long? And then I looked more carefully, and it wasn't Upandita, it was a lampshade. (laughs) So that is the first level of distortion. (laughs) That's a hallucination of perception. Then there's hallucination of mind. That's the second level of delusion. And that's everything our mind does because of the hallucination of perception. Right? So I thought it was Upandita watching me, and I went through all this mental trip about it. So that's called hallucination of mind. The last level, the last distortion, the last level of delusion, is hallucination of view. This is the deepest. This is the one that's most difficult to uproot and eradicate. And this is when we hold a view so tightly, so strongly, that even in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, we're still fixed to that view. And just a few examples of this from our current society. I mean, one of the most striking hallucinations of view that has been in the news is the whole birther movement. You know, the idea that Obama was not born in America, not born in Hawaii. And even, I mean, somebody might, you know, think that. But then there's all the evidence, you know, of the birth certificate and the announcement in the newspapers and... But it doesn't matter. When somebody holds that view, even in the face of evidence, it's not shaken. People hold the view, you know, that evolution doesn't happen and that climate change isn't happening. And it doesn't matter. Even in the face of evidence, to the contrary, the grip of distortion of view is there. Now, it's not just other people. (laughs) It's us. Because we have this huge distortion of view about self. We're holding on. So even though there's overwhelming evidence that this body is growing older and is going to die, that's me. Even though we see thoughts and emotions coming and going, that's me. So we see there's evidence When we look, I mean, we really have to look. There's evidence to the contrary, but the view is very strong. That's why we need very powerful practice to cut through that, to really uproot that deeply held view. But once we do, then even when we have distortions of perception and distortions of mind, If the view is correct, we'll still get caught a lot, you know, and we may get caught in our desires and greed and aversions and all kinds of stuff. But if the view is correct, they no longer have the power to divert us from this path of awakening. So that's why it's so important in our practice to develop the mindfulness which leads to the wisdom of understanding the selfless nature of all of these aggregates. Okay, now we're on my retreat. 
It lasts, I was on sabbatical for about 14 months, not teaching, sat in the beginning of it, and did three months at the end of it. I love being on retreat. <laughs> I hope you do too, even, even in all the difficulties, you know, and all the struggles, because it's so amazing and a privilege to have the time and the space where all we have to do is be investigating the nature of ourselves, the nature of our minds, the nature of our body. What causes suffering? What leads to peace? I mean, what an amazing gift. You know, I just see it as this great laboratory you know, of investigation. So I was on retreat, and I remembered one particular text, one particular sutta. And it became, it became a, uh, a bit of a contemplation. So I'll just read it. It's quite short. So bhikkhus, whatever is not yours, abandon it. Let go of it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. Suppose bhikkhus, people were to carry off the grass, sticks, branches, and foliage in this grove of trees or to burn them, or to do with them as they wish, would you think people are carrying us off, burning us, or doing with us as they wish? No, venerable sir, because that is neither our self nor what belongs to self. Right? If somebody were just to kind of burn the, the brush here, we wouldn't take it that they were burning us or, or carting us away because we know it doesn't belong to us. So too, bhikkhus, form, material elements, is not self. Feeling is not yours. Perception is not yours. Formations are not yours. Consciousness is not yours. Abandon it. Let go of it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. Okay, so that first line, bhikkhus, whatever is not yours, abandon it. That's what came to my mind. So then I thought, well, how to abandon it? You know, how do, I actually, how do I actually apply that in my practice, in my experience? I can understand the words. So that reminded me of another teaching from the Dhammapada, which is a very pointed instruction, where it says, let go of the past. Okay, we kind of understand that. Let go of the future. Okay. Let go of the present and cross over to the further shore. That's a great line. Let go of the present. So this takes mindfulness to another whole level. right? Because there's so much talk about being the present and living the present and be here now. And, and the Buddha is saying, let go of the present. So I actually tried and played with doing just that. With whatever the present moment experience was, it's that movement of the mind releasing any fixation from being in the present. It was like a dropping back from the present. And in that moment of dropping back, I called that experience... Because it's a, very, it's a very immediate experience when we do that. Let go of the present. Unfixate. I call that channel zero. You know, all of our experience is channel one, channel 500, whatever. Meta channel, greed channel, all the different channels of our mind. Letting go of the present is channel zero in which there is complete openness of mind in which everything arises, but there's no fixation on what's arising. Do you have a sense of this? The openness, the freedom of that, that's the mind, free of any grasping, free of any clinging, free of any identification with anything at all, 
let go of the present channel zero. So I was playing with channel zero, and then I saw that it didn't take very long before my mind again got caught up in something or other, you know, in a thought, in a reaction, in a feeling. So I said to myself, don't shoplift. <laughs> What's shoplifting? Picking up that which doesn't belong to us. <laughs> what doesn't belong to us? Everything. <laughs> so these two phrases became like little mantras in my retreat. And sometimes I would just be sitting or walking and I would say, channel zero. And just by, the mind would drop back. And then I'd remind myself, don't shoplift. Don't, don't pick things up again. And it was in doing this, it was in coming back to channel zero, reminding myself not to shoplift, that's when I remembered this phrase, which I've mentioned earlier in the retreat from the Satipatthana Sutta, be mindful there is a body to the extent necessary for clear knowing and continuous mindfulness. And I noticed that whenever I reminded myself of that, just the simplicity, there is a body, the mind dropped back into channel zero again. That was the vehicle for not fixating in the present moment on the body. You know, and we often do that when we think we're being mindful and we're really attentive, but there's that quality of, I don't know, it's like Velcro in some way. You know, there's some quality of adherence to the present. There is a body, channel zero. Everything is arising in that openness. All the sensations of the body, the sensations of the movement, the sounds, the sights, but it's in, in that openness and freedom of mind. And so we use our practice to experiment and see for ourselves and to put into practice the Buddha's words to his son, Rahula, where he said, see everything with perfect wisdom. This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. So just imagine going through the day moment after moment, keeping that in mind, whatever's arising, thoughts, sensations, sound, the aggregates in one form or another, this is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. In that understanding, we have a taste of freedom right here and now. It's not some far-off goal. It's accessible to us if we develop the wisdom through the practice of moment-to-moment mindfulness. So I hope all this was clear and made sense. (laughs) Actually, I'll just close this part with... It's just a a teaching from Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, who was one of the great, great Tibetan meditation masters of the last century. He said, The idea of an enduring self has kept you wandering helplessly, for countless past lifetimes, the idea, it's a concept, the idea of an enduring self, it is the very thing that now prevents you from liberating yourself and others from conditioned existence. If you could simply let go of that one thought of I, you would find it easy to be free and to free others too. Use any practice you do to dissolve this idea of I and the self-oriented motivations that accompany it. And even if you do not succeed in the beginning, keep trying. That's what practice means. We're practicing it. So there's some time if you have any questions or things.
one of my Tibetan teachers, Chokri uh, Rinpoche, if you may know him, he sometimes uh, explains mindfulness very simply as so being aware of whatever you are aware of, you know, just sort of like know your thinking, but know that you know. And so I'm sort of comparing to, and I'm just trying to bridge, not kind of debate or, mm -hmm. you know, come to that But um, when you sort of gave that example of looking at your fear and kind of saying mindfulness was when it was sort of without the attachment or just letting it be, I didn't see that sort of quite included in that other definition of just being aware of whatever you're aware of. And I guess, um, I, mean, what I, I mean, in that system, there's sort of different levels of mindfulness where I guess the awareness, depending on how much grasping is in that awareness, is sort of a higher level of mindfulness. And we sort of yeah. Okay, so, so the question and the comment was about a teaching from Sokni Rinpoche, who He's a Dzogchen master uh, and very wonderful teacher. Uh, that he defines mindfulness as simply being aware of what's arising, of knowing that you know what's there. And so, how does that fit in exactly with how I was talking about the specific qualities of mindfulness? I think it would be interesting the next time you're with him to press a little further about how he's using the term awareness. Because we also, in the same way, before tonight's talk, we were using that same language. You know, just be aware of what's present. You know, know that you're knowing. Recognize what's happening. So very often in meditation instructions and discourse, we will keep it on that quite general level. So what I was trying to do tonight was just to refine the understanding of what mindfulness actually is. And my guess would be that if you asked Rinpoche, is it awareness if, the, if there's greed in the mind? Is, there, is it awareness if there's identification in the mind? He would say no. In fact, I've read in Dzogchen teachings, that awareness means the mind of no clinging. But that's not often explicitly expressed, so we need to, we need to dig a little further. Yeah, there are those four levels of mindfulness, which goes from effort to... Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's always, you know, language is so powerful, and we're so conditioned by the words we use, it's very helpful, you know, with critical terminology to really get very clear about how a term is being used, because they can be used in many different ways. Okay, let's do it one at a time. Acceptance is implied in what I said in that mindfulness is always wholesome, which means that it's always without greed, without aversion, without delusion. Non-acceptance is really a form of aversion. You know? And so acceptance is part of that. Well, it's very likely. I mean, it may stay because the conditions are there for whatever reason. So it might stay even after you really are mindful. But it's not, for myself, it wasn't that sense of it being locked in. You know, I was really caught in it. And it was amazing because in that moment of acceptance, the whole thing washed through. And it doesn't mean that fear never arises again a whole different relationship to it because of the excitement, because it's okay. That became my mantra. 
and I offer it to you for free. <laughs> Whatever's right, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. This is the phrase that has begun more questions <laughs> than any other phrase in history. <laughs> okay, if there's no self, who or what is reborn? That's not the first time this has been asked either. <laughs> In the Buddhist understanding of birth and death and rebirth, it's really no different than what's happening right now, moment to moment. Because each moment is arising and conditioning the next. Because of the qualities in this moment, these qualities condition what arises in the next moment, conditions what arises in the next. So it's like some of the examples that are used. You know, if you imprint wax with a seal, and you take the, the seal away, so the imprint is in the wax, but there's nothing of the seal that is carried over into that imprint. So there's no underlying entity that's carried along. Or you take example of a seed, you know, that germinates and sprouts and becomes a sapling and a tree and the tree bears fruit. It's not that that first seed somehow is carried into the tree, into the fruit. It's a process, and this is a word that's used in Buddhism a lot, a process of becoming. This becomes this, becomes this, becomes this. And this is what's happening right now, moment to moment. Right? It's said, and again, I don't have personal experience of this, but the teaching is that consciousness at the time of death, you know, there's, there's the same continuity of consciousness, death consciousness conditions the arising of rebirth consciousness. And the quality of consciousness at the time of death will condition the kind of rebirth consciousness that arises. But there's no thing that's carried over. And so it's just the, the continuation of the same process of becoming that's happening right now. So the more we understand this process now, the more we can intuit just this whole, what this whole idea of death and rebirth is. And that's why in Buddhism, they don't use the term reincarnation because reincarnation implies someone, something reincarnated. Rebirth, as a term, is more suggestive of the process. Okay, so the, the question was about the application of this in terms, particularly of the death of a loved one. Yeah. I think one of the greatest gifts that we can give to people who are dying is acceptance of the process. Because if we enter into it, as many people do, filled with our own grief, filled with our own fear of the process, what kind of energy you know, are we bringing to that situation? Not very helpful. In the absence of that, when there's really acceptance of the whole process, that acceptance really is a manifestation of love. You know, it's, it's the fear which is alienating. You know, or 
excessive grief, which can be alienating and separating, you know, because it's about us. And so the, the, the understanding and the acceptance This is just a little sidebar. I was at a conference at Gethsemane Abbey, and it was a Buddhist Christian conference. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama was there, and a lot of uh, Trappist and Benedictine monks, and then 25 Buddhist representatives. And out of that conference, uh, the Catholic contingent. Uh, invited four Buddhists, four of the Buddhists, to write a commentary on the rule of Saint Benedict. You know, so it was our take. And, and uh, the, the book is out. It's, I think it's called Benedict's Dharma. <laughs> <coughs> and so it was just our four in, interpretations. And in the course of that conversation, I really began to understand, at least from my perspective that the Buddhist term, emptiness, and the word love means the same thing. Pretty different words. But what is emptiness? Emptiness doesn't mean vacuity. It means emptiness of self. When there's no self, there's no separation. As long as there's self, Self predicates other. And so the experience of emptiness, emptiness of self, actually is love. Anyway, that's my take on it. When you uh, use the metaphor of channel zero at that retreat, would you say that that was... uh, exactly what is meant by, in the suttas, the deathless, the unborn, the unconditioned? Okay, so when I use channel zero, uh, you know, that, that example, is that what's meant in the suttas by the deathless, the unborn, the unconditioned? No. <laughs> but it's the... It's out of... It's out of channel zero that the mind can open to the unborn, the unconditioned. So that would be a further, you could say, a further opening. Because channel zero, in the way I used it, was the mind that was open and free of greed and hatred and delusion... Right? No, no identification with anything. So there's this quality of great openness, but it's still the conditioned mind happening. But that is the field, that is the ground or the, out of which the mind can then open to the unborn. Just a little PS on this. Different Buddhist traditions will describe the unborn, the unconditioned, in many different ways. And so in the different Buddhist traditions, the metaphysics can be quite different and often in conflict. They will be saying very different things about the ultimate nature of freedom. It was that koan that led me to think about and then write one dharma, because I was studying with teachers, all of whom seemed to me quite enlightened masters, saying opposite things about what I considered to be the highest truth. That was a problem (laughs) for me. Just let me finish this. And the way I struggled with this, I really struggled, and the question, who's right? Are they right? Are they right? And then I realized I was asking the wrong question. I realized that in terms of full and complete enlightenment, I didn't know. I just know these guys say this, 
these people say this. And then I saw that all the metaphysics can be understood as skillful means rather than statements of truth. As soon as I saw that, the whole thing resolved. It didn't matter that they were saying opposite things. Is this teaching a skillful mean for letting go, for not clinging? Is this a skillful means for not clinging? Because it's the freedom of mind is in the mind that doesn't cling. As I said to one of my groups, there's no Buddhist tradition that says cling. So that's really the essence. You know? And so in answer to your question, different teachers might give you different responses. And that's what happens as Buddhism has been translated to different cultures. But the essence of the free mind is the same. Okay, I'm two minutes over, and we have a pact with our colleagues. <laughs> we get in trouble. <laughs> Thank you. Let's just sit for a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.